The main barriers for me by far were cultural barriers. The culture of compliance was an absolute massive barrier and the fear of taking risk. And um, because risk, the buck stops with the head of department and if there isn't a precedent for it or isn't, if there isn't a regulation for it in government, you don't innovate. And people don't understand that if you're a creature of statute like a government is, it's quite different from the private sector where you can do what you like until you break the law. In government, you can't do anything unless the law actually says you can. And so to get people to take risks and do things that hadn't been done before and that was outside the regulatory environment was unbelievably difficult. And they didn't want me pushing the barriers and didn't want me having these clashes because it made life difficult. But if you've got a national failing state, you have to push the boundaries. You have to seize your powers where you can. And that makes life really uncomfortable for people. And for example, yes. the culture is in schools. I mean, certain times I'd arrive at school and we had got the connectivity right. We had delivered all the equipment. We had done absolutely everything. And I'd go into a classroom and I'd find a teacher teaching from a little scrap of paper and children with no books and no, no tablets and no computers. And I'd say, but the school's got 5G. The school's got connectivity. The school's got free Wi-Fi. The school's got all the equipment. What's going on? And they say, no, 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 no. We keep that in the strong room because if we have it out here, they'll be stolen and all of that. So the stuff was neatly packed away and looked after and counted and accounted for and not stolen, but it wasn't used because people were too petrified. And they had reason to be petrified because it's not unusual in those communities for gangsters and thieves and criminals to walk in rob everybody of their cell phones and equipment and walk out again. That happens on a regular basis. So people thought, well, this is really precious equipment. We better look after it. We'll lock it up in the strong room. And we had to make strong rooms with you know, reinforced concrete and steel barriers in the ceilings, no windows, nothing to keep them from being stolen. So it was very, very difficult to, in that climate of fear, to create the context of open and free use of resources. Those are the kinds of barriers I came up with that you can't even imagine in Britain. With all these challenges, I'm pretty impressed when I look at the outcomes you've got. Are there things you're particularly proud of when you look back on that? You know, I'm just proud when things work. Building a capable state is the great moral issue of our time. And many people who take a capable state for granted won't know what the hell you're talking about. But in Africa, we know very well what you're talking about. And, you know, there are millions of people living in municipalities where sewage doesn't work anymore, where they can't rely on electricity, where the water isn't drinkable. So, you know, those basics, and you just get the basics to work, you are bloody pleased with yourself because it yes. takes an enormous effort. In that last phase when you were Premier, there was the really quite dreadful drought and water shortage that took a lot of your time and political energy you know, you took charge of that, you led by example, but managing a crisis is a different order of governance, isn't it? It's a different order of governance, and it is particularly challenging in an intergovernmental system. Because in our system, the national government is responsible for bulk water, and I had to persuade the local government not to take over the national government's responsibilities 
without a budget. But the critical thing that we did was that we went out and communicated and communicated and communicated that we would end up at what we called day zero, where every tap would run dry. And we even demonstrated that and said what it would look like and asked people to carry around 25 liters to see how heavy it actually is to get from the communal place where you would collect water to your car, wherever it would be that you would take it. And we put the fear of day zero into the public mind. And, and you had a countdown to day zero, didn't you? you were we had a countdown to day zero because we had calculated precisely, as you say, there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind. And so people were frightened, but people were massively cooperative. And the great credit for avoiding day zero has to go to the people of Cape Town. Yeah. We did the communicating on the risk. And obviously, as government, people get furious with you. They say, what the hell have you been doing? We say, well, we built the full flay dam. We did this. We did that. People don't want to hear you blaming another sphere of government, even if it's true. They say, you're responsible. What are you doing? And we had to say, this is a partnership. We're doing all of these things. But you have to stop using so much water. My dear, there was no bathing here during that period. There was no bathing. You did what I called um, the National Key Points Act. Right, right. <laughs> yes. From a little, bo a little bowl of water, if you were lucky. So we are the only city in the world that has ever more than halved the water consumption to meet a crisis. And fortunately, the rains came and we did not hit day zero.